Good evening and welcome. My name's Lachlan. Uh, I get the task tonight of trying to help us feel the weight of what God has just said to us in His Word. Uh, As Ming mentioned earlier, it's a word that we might not like to hear, so how about I pray for us that God would help us to hear His Word this evening. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You're a God who loves us so much that You warn us. You speak the truth to us when we're running in a direction that will see us harmed. Thank you that you bring to us news that will see us saved. Please tonight as we unpack what you have to say to us, would you help me to speak words that are true? If I say anything that is deviating from your word, that is untrue, would you just cast that from our mind straight away? We don't want untruth tonight. But whatever I say that is in line with your word, that is true, would that please sink deep into our hearts and change us this evening? May we be transformed by your word as we hear what you, our loving Father, has to say to us. Amen. If you find yourself trapped in a mine shaft and it's collapsed, you need to be rescued. You want to be saved. If you're walking the Tongariro crossing and you happen to take a wrong turn in icy conditions, you start going hypothermic, you need to be rescued. You want to be saved. Or if you end up being a minority people group in a country where there's an oppressive dictator, you need to be rescued. You want to be saved. In any of those situations, unless someone saves you, you are doomed. The passage that Vanessa just read for us, it comes from Luke's history of Jesus. Luke has written this history so that we, reading it today, can know for certain who Jesus was, what he said, what he did those 2,000 years ago. As Luke writes this history for us, it's not just some purely intellectual exercise that we might come away knowing history better. No, Luke tells us this history because it impacts us. It matters to us. If we don't respond in the right way to Jesus we are doomed. Let me say that again so that you hear it clearly tonight. If we don't respond in the right way to Jesus, we are doomed. Have a look with me at verse 23 of Luke 13. Keep the Bible open there. You've got an outline in the handout that you received on the way and you might like to take some notes. You'll notice in verse 22 of Luke 13 that Jesus is at this point making his way to Jerusalem. In the early years of Jesus' public ministry, he was up in the north part of Israel, around Galilee, traveling across the lake to the different regions up there. But now, from chapter 9, verse 51 of Luke, he's made his way towards Jerusalem. He's on this downwards journey towards the capital city of Israel, the place where all the power resides. As he's on his way there, verse 23, someone asks him, Lord, are there few being saved? And that question implies a backstory, doesn't it? If I'm walking along Mount Eden Road and someone just comes up to me and says, Lachlan, are there only a few people being saved? Then I'm going to look around and ask, saved from what? Is there a building collapsing somewhere? Is there been a car accident that people are trying to get out from? Has a dragon appeared in Mount Eden and it's breathing fire trying to kill people? What do people need to be saved from? When this person asks Jesus, are there few being saved? We need to ask, save from what? And there can be a tendency to jump in here with all sorts of backstories to fill in the gap. 
Perhaps we need saving from a boring life. Perhaps we need saving from the constraints that are keeping us from fulfilling our potential so that we can live our best life now. Perhaps we need saving from oppressive governments and injustice that's directed against us. Perhaps we need saving from addictive behaviours, destructive habits. There are lots of options that we could choose from for what we need saving from. But if we jump in with our own ideas, that'd actually be terrible Bible reading, wouldn't it? It'd be us imposing on this text a, a meaning that we like, a meaning that we feel might be true. But Luke is writing this history. There is a backstory to this question that the person who was walking along the street had in his mind what he was asking about being saved from. We can't put our own idea here. We need to figure out what was this person actually asking. And given that we're 13 chapters into the book of Luke, I'd assume that somewhere in those first 12 chapters, Luke has told us something about this salvation, something about the danger that people need to be saved from. He's done just that. If we look back to Luke chapter 1, flick there in your Bible or look up on the screen, Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Now, the context here is that Jesus' cousin named John, he's just been born. He's been born miraculously. His parents were quite old. They didn't expect that they'd ever have a child. But they've ended up having John because of God's divine power. And and his father, Zechariah, he's pretty stoked. He didn't think he'd have a child. He recognizes that God is actually up to something pretty special through his son. So, Zechariah, as all men do when they're pretty excited, he bursts into poetry. Have a look at verse 68. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has visited and provided redemption for His people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Just as He spoke by the mouth of His prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the clutches of those who hate us. Feel that language of salvation there, redemption, salvation. Jesus comes as the one who would bring this salvation, answering all the hopes of Israel. For 600 long years, Israel has been ruled over by other nations. At this point in their history, it's the Romans. Israel's become part of the broad Roman Empire. Before Rome, though, it was Greece. Before Greece, the Persians. Before the Persians, the Babylonians. Everyone's had their go at ruling over Israel. And for a nation that was meant to be God's special people, this was tragic. Jesus comes as Israel's king, the son of their first great king, David. And Jesus comes to redeem Israel, to buy her freedom from the clutches of these enemies who hate her, these enemies who are oppressing her. That's what salvation is in the first place for Israel. But in order to do that, in order for Jesus to save Israel, Israel needs to be forgiven. See, their oppression by these other nations, that was no accident. It was actually God's active and passionate and personal punishment on Israel. They deserved it. Israel has rebelled against God. Rather than worshipping Him as the only true God, the only creator and sustainer of all things, the one who has called them out as a nation and formed them and given them this wonderful land to live in, instead of showing gratitude to God for all of that, they turned to worship other gods. They turned to worship idols that were not gods at all, just little lumps of wood and stone and clay. And so God punished them. He booted them out of the land. He gave them over to be ruled over by these other nations. 
And we see this in verse 77, this connection between salvation and forgiveness. Have a look in verse 77. John's role here is to give Israel knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us. You see there, Israel needs saving and that saving will come through the forgiveness of sins. Israel needs mercy and compassion. They were currently getting what they deserve for their sin. Even that, the oppression that they were suffering, it wasn't all that they deserved, it was just a small taste of what they should be getting from God. In chapter 3, when John starts preaching to Israel, he's grown up a bit from chapter 1, he's preaching to Israel and he's warning them of a coming time when God would act in anger. He likens that time to a fiery destruction. That's what Israel deserves for rejecting God, rebelling against Him, not giving Him the honour and credit that He deserves. Indeed, throughout Luke's history, as he writes it multiple times, we see that the opposite of being saved is being destroyed. The opposite of being saved is perishing, being lost forever. But Jesus comes into Israel's history here as the Saviour, the one who can rescue Israel from this destruction that they deserve. As he goes around teaching in Galilee, we find him saving people. Luke uses that word as Jesus saves people from sickness, from demons, from death. Even in chapter 7, Jesus offers the forgiveness of sins. See, Israel did need saving from their enemies. That was a big problem for them. But it was only the surface issue. It was the presenting symptom. There was something worse going on deep down for Israel. Ultimately, what they needed was the forgiveness of their sins. And Jesus, as God come to earth, He was the one who could offer this forgiveness, who could offer this salvation. But what we see as we read through this history is that many Israelites were rejecting Jesus. So that's why when we come to Luke 13, this person comes up to Jesus and says, I'm confused, Jesus. Are there few people being saved? What will happen to Israel? Won't they all be saved? The thought was that Israel was God's special people. God was never meant to reject them. They were meant to live on and be prosperous forever. What's going on here? If Jesus, you're the one bringing salvation, what's going on to all these people? That's the historical setting in which this story comes. But just as it was for Israel, so it is for us today. See, all of us deserve God's anger and judgment. Think about it for yourself. Have you worshipped God as the only true God? Have you at any time given the credit that God alone deserves to someone or something else? Have you perhaps even taken credit yourself for some of God's work? All of us are sinners. We all need to be saved. The evidence of that for us is not the same as it was for Israel. In New Zealand here, we're not under an oppressive ruler, unless you really don't like the British monarchy, but I don't think they're doing anything too bad to us. We're not under some oppressive ruler. But the evidence of God's coming judgment for us is seen in the prevalence of sickness, death, crime. These things are not natural. They're symptoms of our deeper problems. They're the foretastes of God's judgment that is to come. They show us that we are cut off from God. 
We don't need saving from a boring life. That's not the Christian message. We don't need saving from some things that are limiting our potential. That's not the Christian message. That is too small of a message. We need to be saved from the punishment for our sin. We need to be saved from the punishment that we deserve for mistreating God. Notice this in the man's question in this passage. You cannot save yourself. You need to be saved by someone else. You can't work hard now to try to pay off the crime as if God worked on some kind of community service arrangement. You and I, we all deserve destruction. And we can't pay that off. We need someone to save us. We need someone to bring us forgiveness for our sins. Jesus is that saviour. Jesus saves. Now that we understand the backstory to this question in Luke 13, you can kind of see why Jesus doesn't really answer the question. I mean, imagine there's a shipwreck and someone turns to the captain as the ship's sinking into the water and says to the captain, "Uh, Sir, how many people do you think will survive tonight? It's not the time to be asking that question. That's a silly question to ask at that time. And it's the same here. Jesus turns to this man and says in verse 24, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Like the captain on that ship that turns and says, don't ask me how many are being saved, just get yourself into a lifeboat and help others to get in there too. So Jesus says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Salvation, Jesus says, takes effort. Jesus likens this rescue, this salvation that we need, to walking through a doorway. Now, on the other side of that doorway, he tells us what's there in verse 28 to 29. There's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, a mass of people from all over the world enjoying a banquet in the kingdom of God. That sounds great. The the house that the door heads into, it's God's house, where God's people are living under God's rule. It's a place where all those symptoms of our sin aren't there anymore. No more sickness, no more death, no more crime. That's the positive side of being saved. Saved from destruction into new creation. Let there be light. (laughs) That's great, I can see. Um, That's the positive side of creation. We're saved from this destruction that we deserve, the punishment for our sin. We're saved into new creation, into God's place where we'll forever enjoy His company. But getting into that place... Walking through that door, Jesus says, that takes effort. It's like walking through a narrow door. I'm sure you've all had this experience, haven't you? Unless I'm the only bad parker amongst us, but you park a bit too close next to someone and you can't quite get the door open, so you have to put your hand outside and make sure you don't ding the car and then you suck your tummy in as far as you can go to try to squeeze your way out. You throw your bag out first. It's hard getting through narrow doors, isn't it? Jesus says, the way to be saved is narrow. It's not comfortable. It takes effort. You don't just wander through this wide open door and be like, oh, hey, turns out I'm saved. It takes deliberate effort. It takes thought. Now, what kind of effort does Jesus have in mind? Again, we might come with all our ideas and jam them into this passage, but Luke's given us the context. 
He's built up to this point in his story. So have a look with me at Luke chapter 9. Read from verse 24. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What is a man benefited if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? See the effort that's spoken of there? If you want to be saved, then you need to lose your life. The effort is one of self-denial as you hand over the reins of your life back to God. And to help us understand what this looks like, Luke goes on to give us a few examples, both real-life characters that Jesus interacts with, or people in some of the stories that Jesus tells. In chapter 15, we meet a son who has to turn back from his hopes and dreams of independence. He has taken his family wealth and gone off to the city to live a wild life, but he's had to realize that that was futile and turn back from those dreams of independence, returning with apology to the father that he realizes can truly provide for him. So we too need to give up our foolish claims to independence from God. We need to recognize how well God provides for us. In chapter 18, we meet a ruler who thinks he's doing pretty well. He comes to Jesus asking how to get eternal life. He says, I've, I've kept all the commandments all my life. And Jesus says to him, sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor if you want to be saved. Self-denial. In chapter 19, we meet a man named Zacchaeus who meets Jesus and does want to come through this door of salvation. And what that looks like for him is that he gives half of his possessions to the poor. He's been living up until this point a life of really crime. He's been extorting people, stealing their money. And when he meets Jesus, he says, I'm going to give back four times as much as I stole from anyone else. And Jesus looks at that and says, that is evidence of salvation. Here is a man who has been saved. He's willing to give up himself. Self-denial. Now we'll look at each of those characters more closely in the coming weeks and you meet others who lose their life in order that Jesus might save it. But the point there is clear, isn't it? If you want to save your life, you need to lose it. You need to stop building your own little kingdom here on earth and start letting Jesus be the one who calls the shots. Because it's possible to try to have both. It's possible to be an associate of Jesus, to hang around Jesus, but not actually honour Him in all of your life as your King. It's possible to come to church every now and then, to call yourself a Christian when you feel like it's safe to do so, even to give a token amount of money to Christian charities, but to actually still be holding on to your life. I wonder if that's you as you come here this evening. Jesus tells us in verse 25 to 27 of Luke 13 that there'll be some who will stand outside the door and knock, to whom Jesus will reply, I don't know you. They'll say, but we ate and we drank with you. You taught in our streets. We know who you are, they say. But Jesus will say again, I don't know you. Get away from me. Those are chilling words. Don't let them be the words that you hear from Jesus when death comes your way. There's a classic book called Pilgrim's Progress written by John Bunyan. Can I get a show of hands, actually? Who has heard of that book before? 
great. Who's read it before? Okay, a few, good. Uh, It's a classic allegory that helps to unpack some of the Christian life. And there are two characters that you meet in there, uh, formalist and hypocrisy. Formalist knows all the outward forms of religion. He thinks, I don't mind being baptised. I'll take the Lord's Supper every week. I'll come to church. But this business about repenting from sin, this believing, this striving after holiness, actually letting my life be changed by Jesus, that's too much. I'll just put on the outward show. I'll have all the form, but none of the power of godliness. And it's similar for hypocrisy. You can put on this mask of religiosity, present to the outside world that you might be a Christian, but inwardly, there's no true trust in Jesus as Saviour. What Jesus is saying in Luke 13 is that neither of those options is good enough. Neither will see you make it through this narrow door. You'll be outside, knocking, wanting to be let in. It's not enough to be an associate of Jesus. You need to be his disciple. Hell is not just for the worst of the worst. There'll be many in hell who thought that they would be in heaven. There'll be some very religious people who end up shut out from God's house. When we get to Luke 18, Jesus will tell us the right attitude that we need to have in order to be saved. We meet another tax collector there in Luke 18 who comes to God and cries out, God, turn your wrath away from me, a sinner. God, turn your anger away from me. I am a sinner. Have you approached God with that heart? Or do you come to God thinking, hey God, I'm a pretty good person. I reckon we should be friends. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled by God. Everyone who humbles himself before God will be exalted. Or as Jesus says in Luke 13 verse 30, some are last who will be first and some are first will be last. Salvation takes effort. It takes humility to cry out to God, turn your wrath away from me. It takes self-denial as you hand over the reins of your life back to God. The door is narrow. It's not wide. Salvation. Do you want it? For those who find themselves outside of God's house, looking in through the windows, faces pressed up against the glass, seeing what they've missed out on. The response in verse 28, great grief, weeping, gnashing of teeth. These were Jewish practices of mourning, things that you might see at a funeral. There's this great grief, cries of wailing, because these people realize that there's no second chance. Once the door is shut, it will not open again. It's why Jesus travels around Israel teaching people and calling them to be saved. The time is short. They have one window of opportunity in this life to respond rightly to God. But many were rejecting Jesus. Many people found it offensive that Jesus would call them sinners and tell them that they need saving. That's why in verse 31 we find these Pharisees and they were deeply religious people But they hear his message, they just want Jesus to move on. Go, get out of here. 
Herod wants to kill you, they say. Now, Jesus isn't troubled by this news that someone wants to kill him. He knows that it's not actually going to happen. He knows that he's going to make it to Jerusalem. But Herod up here in Galilee, he can't stop Jesus' travel plans. Because Jesus, as a prophet, must die in Jerusalem. See his response, verse 31. Go tell that fox, look, I'm driving out demons. I'm performing healings today and tomorrow. On the third day, I'll complete my work. Yet I must travel today and tomorrow and the next day because it's not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus here puts himself alongside all the other prophets that God has sent to Israel down through her history. The problem that Israel's having right here with Jesus is not new for them. God sent many prophets down through the years who presented a God's eye perspective on what was happening in Israel. They saw Israel in their sin, in their wickedness, in their idolatry, worshipping these other gods. And the prophets called Israel to repent, to turn back to the one true and living God. But people don't like hearing that they're wrong. People don't like being told that they need to change. And so these prophets, without exception, were killed. And now we find Jesus walking that same path of the prophet calling people to repentance, calling people to change and being killed for it. See, salvation may be on offer, but you have to want it. So can I urge you tonight to please learn from Israel's negative example. Continue with me from verse 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus wants to save Jerusalem, but Jerusalem does not want to be saved. Like that person that refuses to take the bitter medicine. The doctors prescribe this medicine knowing that it will cure them, but the person just can't stand the bitterness. In that same way, Israel's leadership refused to listen to Jesus. They wanted their power, their privilege, their status more than they wanted to be saved. And so the result of that in verse 35, your house is abandoned to you. By rejecting Jesus, God's anger did come on this city of Jerusalem. Israel lost her prominence in the year 70 AD, some 40 years after Jesus is speaking here. The anger of God fell upon Jerusalem as the Roman forces sent in their troops and wiped out the city. The temple was torn down. All that remains of that temple today, if you're ever in Israel, is one part of one wall. It's called the Wailing Wall, as modern Jews wail at the loss of what they once had. By refusing to be saved, by not wanting to be saved, they lost all. But not only did they lose all in this life, for those who died without turning to trust in Jesus, all hope is lost. They're now outside that door, knocking and being refused entry. Knocking, saying, but we're sons of Abraham. We we thought we'd be in. We saw you. We, We heard you in our streets. And Jesus is saying, get away from me. I don't know you. So please tonight, don't be like Jerusalem. Don't get all high and mighty and say, how can this person up the front who doesn't even know me, 
How can he tell me that I'm a sinner who needs to be saved? Jesus wants to save you. Like a hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. I don't know if you understand what that image is painting for us. Uh, Farmers will speak of times when they've gone back out into the farm after a fire has swept through. And they'll find the burned out remains of a hen. But out from under that hen's wings will come living chicks. Protected by the mother hen who has gathered them under her wings. Taking the brunt of the fire that they might be saved. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be just like that hen. To take the brunt of the fire of God's anger. For you and I who deserve God's judgment against our sin, Jesus has died in our place. Giving his life for ours. Opening up that door of salvation that we might undeservedly enter into God's house and join his feast. Jesus wants to save you. Do you want to be saved? Is there something else that you want more right now? Power, prominence, status, wealth, acceptance. Whatever that something else might be, it will not last. It's a futile hope. It will not survive death and it will be burnt up in hell. It is not worth more than the eternal banquet in God's house. The important question tonight is not whether few are being saved. The important question is, are you being saved? Have you turned to God and cried out for His mercy? Have you acknowledged before Him that you are a sinner who needs to be saved? To do that will take effort. It will take humility. It will take self-denial. It is a narrow door. If you're sitting here tonight as someone who hasn't responded to God in that way and you're thinking, that's all right, give me another 10 years of living the way that I'm living. Maybe I'll come to Jesus in 10 years' time. I just want to share with you something that's happened for me in the last two weeks as God has reminded me again that our life is not in our hands. We do not know when our life will end. Two weeks ago, two Sundays ago, a lady who saw me grow up from a child in church a lady whose daughter I led in youth group at church. She was at church two Sundays ago having a great time, meeting new people. On the Monday, she was cooking meals for people. Last Sunday, she died. She'd been looking ahead, assuming that there'd probably be 40 more years of her life. She was just in middle age, fit as a fiddle. No one would have thought that anything was going to happen. But that week, she contracted meningococcal and went to her brain, and within two days, she was gone. Now, whether it be her or my mate who at the age of 23 was riding his motorcycle and came off and died, or my uncle who I never met because at the age of 18 he jumped in a car late at night and crashed and died, we don't know when our life will end. So if you're here tonight and you're hearing this word from Jesus warning you that once the door is shut, it will not be opened again, tonight's the night to respond. Tonight's the night to come to Jesus and say, I'm a sinner, I need your mercy. I need you to turn your anger from me. Christian brother or sister, as you're here this evening, 
can I encourage you that you have made the right choice in coming to Jesus. I know the path is difficult. It is a narrow door to walk through. As you wage war against the desires of your flesh in a world that keeps telling you, ah, just do what you want. Go and do whatever makes you happy. That wears you down to fight against that message from the world. As you stick up for Jesus in a world that wants him and his exclusive claims dead and buried, a world that mocks you when you tell them that Jesus is the only way to be saved, that grows tiring when you stick up for him. As you see uni mates and work colleagues grow in their wealth while you continue to give your hard-earned money to God and to the poor, you question whether you're doing the right thing. It is hard. The path is difficult. The door is narrow. But let me tell you this evening, you're doing the right thing. You've made the good choice. You've chosen the good portion. The door is narrow, but it leads to eternal life. It leads to a banquet in God's house where you will join Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, masses of people from around the globe. You'll be there with God, enjoying His company forever and ever and ever and ever. So keep striving. Keep fighting the good fight of the faith. Finish the race. How about I pray for us? Father, thank you that you are merciful and compassionate. When you see us dead in our sin, when we rebel against you, when we give, you, when we give credit that you deserve to someone or something else, even when we take that credit for ourselves, you are rightly angry at us. We deserve your condemnation. But you are rich in mercy and you sent your son Jesus into this world that he might warn us that judgment is coming. And that by his death upon the cross, he might open up for us a way to be saved. We thank you. And we ask you, God, turn your anger from us, sinners. We give our lives into your hands. Amen.
14 that it is about pointing to Jesus. If we recognize that He is the King of the universe and He made you and me, then we'll recognize that life is about giving Him what He deserves, the glory going to Him. We exist to point people to Jesus. So we stand and remind one another of that as we sing, All Glory Be to Christ. Let's stand and sing. Should nothing of our effort stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, Tell me what is your life amidst that vanishes that dawn? All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King.
Christ our King. Oh, glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. Oh, glory be to Christ. Yes, Lord, we pray. All glory be to Christ. No matter what we do, work or study, I pray that you would guide us, show us how we can model you in our workplaces, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take a seat. It would be a great time now uh, to take out that card that you got in your outline called a Connect card. Uh, we really would love everyone here to fill that in, even if you've been here for 100 years or 900 years, which doesn't really happen. Uh, uh, we'd love you to fill it in, let, you know, let us know that you are here, to let us know anything you'd like us to be praying for you. As a staff team, we do pray through these cards every week, uh, and so it'd be great to put down if there's anything you'd like us to be praying for you. If you've got any questions that you'd like to ask, you feel free to come and ask William, myself, Lachlan, uh, after the service, but also you could write them down there, we'd love to get back to you on those. Or if you'd like to maybe find out more about this Jesus, that people think is so important, they're willing to ditch their careers to serve Him first, Maybe there's a box that you could tick. I'd like to find out more about Jesus, and I'd like to come along to explaining Christianity. That's something that we run starting in February. Uh, it's a couple of Wednesday nights, four of them in a row, where we think through who is Jesus, what has He done, and you can really throw all your questions at Him. It'd be a great place to come. So I'll just give you a moment to fill them out now, uh, and then we'll come back together in a sec. Well, friends, we'd love for you uh, to join us. There'll be some supper just outside uh, the theatre uh, to hang around, to chat to people. Uh, pretty soon, around 8, we're going to head uh, to, to a restaurant outside in the city. Uh, I can't, we haven't worked out where we're going. The first person to yell out where we're going wins. It was over here. What did you say? Where is that? On oh, Norbonne. All right. And he got first. I don't, I don't care. I've decided. We're going to Norbonne. Uh, it's just across Albert Park. I said the first one. That's where I stand. Uh, so about, about 8 o'clock, we'll kind of head down there, we'll grab some dinner together, ask questions. William and Janet will be here. Great opportunity to ask questions. Um, but friends, tonight I hope that as you've heard God's word, you've been able to realign the way that you view the world to the way God views it. To see why we're here and who is king and who has really the right to tell us how we should live. 
So often we get sidetracked into the things that the world says is important. But Paul says this, Jews, they demand signs, pop and flash and bubble. Greeks demand wisdom, philosophy. But I preach Christ and Him crucified. Stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. But Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. God has spoken. Let's go away and listen to our King and serve Him with our lives. See you outside. Oh, 